turn to Romans 16. And while you're doing that, I'd like to just ask you, what are the words that describe you? Now, some of you might be a little hard on yourself, and some might be prone to the other extreme, but what are the words that describe you? Maybe you might want to start like, what are words that would describe who you were before you placed your faith in Jesus? What described your characteristics, your way of life? Maybe there were words like passive, self-centered, people-pleasing, fearful, hardworking for personal benefit, aimless, discontent, driven by lust, shallow, worried, angry, out of control, religious, rebellious. Now, some of you, you know, like, we don't really want to think about life before Christ, right? We are really wanting to not focus on that because it's bad, right? But what were the words that described you before you came to Christ? And what has changed because of Jesus? You see, The glory of the gospel is that God is glorifying himself through his people. And when you and I come to a place of realizing God's tremendous love for us in Christ, when we turn from sin and all the idols of this world to really believe in Jesus, he literally gives us his spirit in our life and he begins to transform us. We we change. We're not only declared right with God, we're justified, like as we've been studying the book of Romans we see, but God brings about a right living. And we start changing because of the work of the Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what is so profound about the final chapter of the book of Romans. We're going to meet just a long list of random, forgotten, faceless names. And I have to tell you, I read through the Bible and, and I've skipped over a good chunk of Romans 16. You're like, oh, these are all these names. I don't know who they are. I just kind of keep moving. And I pick it up about verse 17. I'm not the only one. I know you've done that too. But Romans 16 is like the crown jewel of the book of Romans. It's what God intends through the gospel that he's explained for 15 chapters. He says, now this is what it looks like in display in human lives. These are people that have run their race. They've worked through their trials. They've experienced initial commitment to Christ. They have gone and grown And now they've received their prize. They are in the presence of Jesus himself. But it's kind of like what uh, is written in Hebrews 11.4 about Abel. Though they are dead, they still speak. You see, you need to know something about the words. And I'm going to ask that as we go through this, I want you to just jot down the words that you see that describe these people. And in a few minutes, we'll compare notes. But as we go through this, just jot down the words that describe these people. And I want you to know something, that the words that describe you, they eventually, they define you. The words that describe your behavior, your way of life, your characteristics, how you go about your weeks, eventually, they become the defining words of your life. Now, as we look at this, you're gonna, we're going to encounter about 26 different names. It's really interesting. Paul is not only a soul winner and a disciple maker, but he is also a guy who has a lot of deep friendships. And he really seems to love people, and he's not afraid to show it or to speak it. And so as we go through this, I want you to just kind of jot down what you see. As we go through these 26 names, um, a third of them are women. Women had a major role in the life of the early church. And so we we pick it up in chapter 16, verse 1. Notice that's exactly who we meet, our first one. He begins... 
with Phoebe. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and notice how she's described, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. So Centria is the port city of Corinth. It's about 6.5 miles south of Corinth. There's a series of forts, and she is at this church. And notice how she is described. He says, I want, she's a servant, and when you receive her in the Lord, verse 2, do so in a manner worthy of the saints. I want you to treat her with the highest regard. I want you to give her the warmest of welcome. And I want you to help her, look what he says, in whatever matter she may have need of you. Why? Who is this woman that you think so highly of? Verse 2, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. This is an amazing woman. It's translated helper, but the Greek word really could be translated patron. Someone who uses their resources for the furthering of a cause. Now, most scholars agree that Phoebe is the one who is actually bringing the letter of Romans from Corinth, where Paul has written it, to Rome. She's the gal. In fact, one scholar said this, she bears in her robes the light of the world. I mean, think of it. The book of Romans, the greatest treatise of the full explanation of the gospel. Who would you entrust the only copy to? Paul says, I'm going to give you my very best. I'm going to give it to Phoebe. She is trustworthy. I can count on her. She is likely a successful businesswoman. And you see several of those in the New Testament. And he says, I want you to receive her. She has been a great help to many and to me personally. Now, you might be thinking like, big deal. Paul said, hey, can you deliver this letter to Rome? I know you're going there on a business trip. And you might treat us that you're like, oh, yeah, just to throw it in the back of my suitcase, you know. And I'm, I'm going to go through TSA. Hopefully they won't take it. And uh, I'll, I'll turn it down. No big deal. Hopefully I won't lose it. I want you to think about the little things God has called you to do and the great things. Never treat them lightly. You have no earthly or even heavenly idea of what God does through even your littlest acts of service. You have no idea. You're just called to be faithful. And so that's what she does. She takes this letter. I, I was just marvel. Like this past week, vacation Bible school, we had kids everywhere. And it was, it was awesome. And like so many of you in the church, you took time off work. You took time off your things you're usually doing. And you just poured into these kids. And then we had music camp after that. And I just kind of watched. And we had kids running around. And they have airplanes. There's an airplane somewhere launched up here. I didn't know how they got into some of the places that they did. But they did. You have no idea you expressing your kind of love, the love of Jesus to them, explaining the gospel. We had kids here who have no background in church. One of them was like, didn't even understand any of the songs and was even troubled about the wages of sin as death. Didn't understand that and was, and, and one of the people in our church explained the gospel as we kept doing it over and over. Or I think about like uh, our youth go to the Navajo Indian Reservation. Do you know that there are people in our church, they take their vacation. Some only have like two weeks, and they go and they invest in our kids. They go to the Navajonian Reservation. If you think it's like, oh, Palm Beach and real nice, you're mistaken. It is super difficult, hot, tough circumstances, building a house, sharing the gospel, running VBS. You have no idea how your investment 
has huge dividends in the eternal kingdom. Certainly Phoebe, I don't know if she realized just how, she knew it was an important letter written from the apostle. But the impact this letter has had on the world has been profound. She is to be greeted, she is to be warmly welcomed and strongly supported. Look at this next one here. Verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila. Okay, Here is a couple, a married couple, and Paul calls them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Whoa, look at this, verse 4. Who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Okay, so Prisca and Aquila, they are mentioned seven times in the New Testament. They are the example that God gives us of what does a married couple look like that are Christians. There, there are other married couples in the Bible, uh, especially in the New Testament. Uh, you got like Mary and Joseph, but Joseph dies early on, and we don't really hear much about him. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, you remember that uh, everybody is just giving really generously to the church, and they're selling land, and they're giving to the church for the furthering of God's work. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira are like, whoa, this is cool. And, and they're being thanked and appreciated. So what they did is like, we're going to do that, but we're going to sell some land, but we'll, we're going to do this. We're going to hold back some, but we're going to act like we gave it all, right? And uh, all you have to do is read Acts chapter 5. And uh, it didn't go so well for them. They die. Because God judges their hypocrisy. So they're probably not going to be like our lead example. We can learn from a bad example, okay? Your heart's not completely in it. You got a bunch of pretenses. You're putting on a show, but you're not the real deal. Or you're holding out or holding back. You might want to read Acts chapter 5. It is super sobering. But the lead example of a couple that's a Christian couple is is this couple. Prisca is an abbreviation for Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila. They're mentioned seven times uh, in the New Testament. Interesting. We don't know how they come to Christ, but they're in Rome. We do know this, that in AD 49, Emperor Claudius, he calls, tells all of the Jews, and related to the Jews are these Christians, and he says, you're out of here. There was, according to the document, there was riots being caused because of this Christos, okay, which is just kind of a variation of Christos. He didn't understand the dispute. There were some that were saying that this Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews are like, no way, we don't want him to be our Messiah. And there were problems that were occurring. He says, that's it. I want you out of my city. And he expels them all. And so this couple, Prisca and Aquila, they make their way to Corinth. Now, can you imagine if you were them? I mean, what if, what if you got the run put on you? It's like, that's it. Out of Waco. We're done with you. Get out. You'd be like, whoa, God, what are you doing? How could you possibly work in this? I mean, the government just kicked me out of my own city. Well, I'm sure they have thoughts like that, but you know what happened? They went to Corinth, and guess who they met up with who was on a second missionary journey? The Apostle Paul. They were tent makers by trade. That's what Paul did. He was also a tent maker. He made tents. They get together. They spend time together. It is through this couple that Paul learns all about what God is doing in Rome, the heartbeat of the empire, how God is at work with the gospel, and how people are becoming Christians. And he learns it from them. They team up in ministry. They host a church in their home. When Paul moves on to Ephesus, they go too. That's where all the action is going on. There's a lot of intense persecution of Christians. 
They're like, that's what we're doing. We're going there. They're kind of like, remember General Ashby, the general, he had his cavalry, and they always would say, he'd tell his men, we're going to ride to the sound of the guns. Where they're shooting, where the battle's at, we're going to ride to the guns. That's what we do. That's what this couple's like. Where the fighting's taking place, where it's, where it's intense, where the gospel's going forward and there is need for comfort and support and engagement, we're riding to the sound of the guns. We're showing up there. And so they do. And eventually, when Claudius dies, uh, Priscilla and Aquila moved back to Rome. And they had a house church in Ephesus. You know, in the early church, they didn't have buildings. So the people met in homes. And so they met in their home. That was their pattern. They used their resources. They used hospitality. They used their food. They used their home. And they just opened it up. And they worked and ministered for Christ. Powerful example. And notice what else it says about them. They, they risked their own necks. Okay? And this is taken from one of the ways that the Romans would execute people is they just chop their heads off. And so someone to put your life on the line, they say they risked their own necks. They did it. They weren't kind of the easy believism. I'm going to follow Jesus as long as it's, it's real calm and, and good things are happening to me. But boy, when it gets intense or there's some sort of persecution going on, well, we're going to bail. Not this couple. And by the way, I'm sure they were worried like, man, what in the world is going on in our government? They kicked us out of our own city. Some of you might be going like, what in the world is going on with our government? Hey, God may be at work in ways that you have no idea. They would have never showed up in Corinth had they not gotten kicked out of the city. God used it. He's sovereign. He's in control. He reigns, right? And he's, they see it. And this couple, they risk their own life. They are the pattern. You know, you never want to get to a point when you're, if you're married and you're talking about the good old days when you used to serve God when you were a single. Remember that? Oh, you're single. You're highly engaged. I've seen this. People, young folks, loving the Lord, going for it, sharing the gospel, growing in their faith, not afraid, taking steps. When they get married and... It's just like this. They just start jettisoning the whole idea of serving God. We're kind of busy. And then next thing you know, I mean, they're doing good just to even show up to church. Totally not involved. You know, I mean, still a Christian, of course, you know, you can't lose your salvation, but they're not engaged. You don't want to end up like that. You want to end up like this couple. And I'll tell you something. For those of you who are married, you have kids. The pattern you set for your kids is their understanding of what it means to walk with God and to serve Christ. You want to be real careful. Like, you know, it's like, hey, I mean, we don't want to work, so so it's just about knowing Jesus, but the whole idea of serving Jesus, we don't want to do that because it makes me feel like I'm working. And what happens is you set a pattern of complacency, and it starts eroding you, and it'll have some pretty serious implications in your kids. This couple... They're serving them. And I'll tell you, like in marriage, this is where it gets exciting. If you, get, if you think like, oh, it's just marriage, uh, we're going to build marriage on marriage. Marriage isn't big enough. It's not. What you, I'll tell you where the joy is and the excitement comes is when you're serving God together, when you're engaged. Now, you may have very differing ministries or you might be all teamed up and doing things exactly together, but, but you want to be involved in the ministry and moving forward. And that's what this couple does. They weren't like seminary trained. They were great orders. You know what their tools were? Very simple tools. Hospitality, friendship, 
person-to-person teaching. They're not public speakers. They just opened their home. You see, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, you know what they had? They had kitchens and dinner tables. They had Christians who would open up their home. You need to know this. If you've got a front door, a table, some bread, peanut butter, or if you've upgraded the meat, you welcome to the ministry. You are in a great situation to minister to the saints. It's, I mean, it's hard to get to know everybody in here like this, right? You know how that happens? You know how growth, real conversations take place? They take place in intimate areas like homes. And Prisca and Aquila understood that completely. I'll have to tell you, for my life, this is a great joy. Um, my wife and I both became Christians, many of you know, at the University of Oregon. I believe I was profoundly saved. I was going in a completely wrong direction. I, was, I believed in Christ. I experienced the revolution of the gospel, and my whole orientation changed. The same with my wife. I started a Bible study. I had all non-Christians, except I had one Christian and all non-Christians in my first Bible study. So I had to get rid of the Christian, okay, because he knew more than me, all right? I was like one step ahead of the dogs, right? And so I got rid of Carl. I found him a nice Bible study. He might learn something, right? And I'm reading and saying, because everything I'm reading is new, and I'm teaching it to all these fraternity boys who have alcohol problems, and they, they have a lot of issues, a lot of red flags, needing help from Jesus, right? And my wife, before, before I even knew her, she's leading a Bible study in her sorority. And, and so what we did, we, we started walking with Jesus, and when we met, and then, you know, we graduated from school, and we both worked up in Portland in business, different businesses. And then we got married. But you know what? We kept serving the Lord in all sorts of different capacities. Now, we're very different, and our service looks different, and it changes seasons to seasons as the things that we do. But we're in it together, and it's exciting. We're in the ministry. Friends, that's what Prisca and Aquila are like. And so what are the words that describe your marriage? Are they like Priscilla and Aquila? This is the gospel. God brings about these kind of changes. Look at this also in verse 5. Look at this next guy. Epinatus, you see him? My beloved. Okay, this term is used four times in these verses. It means one who is dearly loved. Whoa, look at this. Who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. We have no idea where or how he heard the gospel of Jesus. But he heard and believed. He makes his way to Rome. Okay, here's a guy. He's a transplant. And he is dearly loved by Paul. I want you to pick up. All of us who are involved in disciple-making, look at how Paul goes about it. Look at his words. Look at the love. Look how he specifically points things out. Look at this next one here, verse 6. Greet Mary, who has, look at this, worked hard for you. The, uh, the idea is that she worked to the point of exhaustion, okay, to labor and give everything. It wasn't like one time. You remember Mary worked one time? Remember that one day? No, it was like a way of life for her. She worked hard. And I want you to know, you're involved in the ministry, investing in people, dealing with problems, encouraging, pouring out, teaching, caring, extending help, extending hospitality. It will wear you out. You will, it will be hard at times. But God always renews and replenishes. But I want to be like this gal, Mary. She worked hard for you. This is the gospel in motion. This is Jesus mobilizing his people. And then 
Whoa, look at this next one here. Uh, verse 7. Perhaps this is another couple. Greet Andronicus and Junius. Now, uh, the name could either be male or female. Uh, it's, it's likely it's a couple. We don't necessarily know for sure. They, they seem to function as such. He says, verse 7, they're my kinsmen, so they have some Jewish blood. He identifies that. He identifies them uh, as coming from the same background as himself. And Paul writes that they are my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So here we find out that they were fellow prisoners. Maybe they say we're in the same prison as Paul at one time. Or maybe they're just fellow sufferers, as many in the early church became, and they had been imprisoned at some point. And But he calls them my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. This is not the capital A apostles, the official 12. Apostolos has, it means to be sent. These were sent ones. They likely knew the apostles because they were outstanding, okay? And the apostles considered them a great couple. And you need to know something. They were in Christ. You see that at the end of verse 7? Before me. Perhaps they even served as mentors for the apostle Paul. Every person needs mentors. I'd have to tell you that I believe that I am in a large part the product of godly men who have come to Christ before me, who have poured into my life. I really, I frankly have no idea where I'd be apart from Doug and Brett and Scott and Tyler and John and Gary and Rob, all these men who have poured into my life. And I've watched them. I've watched how they dealt with difficulty, how they lead, how they teach, how they go through great trials, how they lead their family. And I learned. And perhaps that's what it's for Paul. He says, I want you to know something. They were in Christ before me. And I don't want to skip this because do you see that? He calls them the fellow prisoners. You know what that means? That means they suffered for the sake of Jesus. They are what you could call purple heart Christians. They had taken the badge of honor where they'd been scarred because of Christ. You know, when you see people uh, in our military wearing a purple heart, what do you do? You know what you do? You thank them for their service and their sacrifice. Because what do you do? How do you get a Purple Heart? You mail order it in? You serve in the military for years? Get a Purple Heart? Is that how it works? No, we got lots of people in the military. You get a Purple Heart when you have been wounded by an instrument of war at the hands of an enemy. If you die, they give it to your nearest relative, your next of kin. But if you're alive and you're carrying shrapnel in your body to be awarded a Purple Heart, Heart. It signifies complete commitment of a soldier. You bear the scars and you're honored. Friends, this couple, they're Purple Heart Christians. Remember the First Council of Nicaea, uh, Constantine the Emperor, Constantine the First, in 325 AD, he called together all the elders and bishops of these different churches, and they, their primary objective was to settle some Christological issues on, like, the nature of the Son of God and his relationship to God the Father, okay? So that was the, why they came together. When all of these elders, these bishops, came together in Nicaea, in Bithynia, it is written that many of them came to the council with the marks of persecution on their faces. They'd been beat, lashed. Some of them didn't have eyes. Some of them were missing limbs. Why? Because of their testimony of Jesus. 
This is what it means to follow Christ. In American culture, we present Jesus like, don't you want a nice little friend like Jesus to be in your corner to help you like a celestial Santa Claus? We kind of present it that way. And we'll follow Jesus as long as it's, it's comfortable, right? Friends, that's not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is recognizing that Jesus is Lord, master of the universe, worthy of all of my attention, everything about me. It is a radical changing from self as the idol to a worship of the one true living God. And when you are scarred for him, and we got a lot of brothers and sisters around the world that have been, who even lose their life, they're like Purple Heart Christians. Look at this early church. Look at the people that are in it. Look at verses 8 and 9. These are names of slaves. Really interesting. In the New Testament, seven of the New Testament books actually reference different slaves. And verses 8 and 9, you have uh, several of them that are listed. Uh, at this time, first century A.D., a fifth of the Roman Empire is made up of slaves. You get about 12 million slaves in the Roman Empire. In the New Testament, you even have a book written about a slave. You remember it? Philemon, written about the slave Onesimus. Remember what Paul writes in Philemon 11? He was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful both to me and you. You see, low positions, slaves elevated to the highest. And here we have several that are listed. Look at verse 7. He says, greet Andronicus, excuse me, verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. He calls this slave, and this is a common slave name, Ampliatus, greet him because he is loved in the Lord. This is, by the way, a common name of some of the emperor's household slaves. Perhaps he was one of them. Or verse 9, Greek Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Okay? And so here we have some more that are listed. And these are people that are likely involved in families, whether they're actual part of the families. And this guy, Aristobulus, he is thought to be the brother of Herod Agrippa I or the grandson of Herod the Great. And here we have some of the servants, maybe even some of the relatives in this family, and they walk with God and they serve him. And notice, as he keeps going here, here's another one, verse 11. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my kinsman. So Paul identifies with him, has the same Jewish background. And notice what else he says, verse 11, greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, this is really interesting there, if you studied Roman history, you know that the Emperor Claudius had a famous secretary in his name, Narcissus. This guy had formerly been a slave. He became a freedman. He was apparently very sharp, very intelligent, and he was extremely useful. And he became the secretary of Emperor Claudius. Now, Narcissus, what happened is, like, okay, Claudius' wife is believed uh, poisoned her husband. And, his, and so Claudius dies at the age of 63. When that takes place, Nero moves in, becomes the next emperor, and what he did is he killed Narcissus. And when he had him executed, immediately all of Narcissus' property, all of his servants, all became imperial property. And so it is believed that although Narcissus likely was not a Christian, those in his household were, because notice, he even greets them, greet those 
of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. People in Rome would know who these people are, how powerful that is. And then look at verse 12. Here we got a likely a group of single twins, Greek Tryphena and Tryphosa. Their names mean delicate and dainty. Likely they're not married. Their husbands are not mentioned. Perhaps they're even young girls. But notice he says, greet them. And look how he describes these singles. Going for it. Workers in the Lord. Not kicking back, just waiting to get married. No, we're engaged, involved in the ministry of making disciples of all the nations. And then look at here in verse 12. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. You see this? What kind of words are you writing down that Paul uses to describe these people? They're words of encouragement. You see, the power of encouragement is to specifically point out how someone is growing in Christ, traits that you can see, and to identify them. It's so powerful to do so. I was reading about this. um, He was a junior high kid at the time in the 1980s. His name is Lou Buono. And uh, he had stayed after school. Science teacher asked him to stay after school to work on a dissection. Won't get into all the details on it, but they wanted to remove a brain and a spinal cord out of a frog. Okay? I didn't give you any pictures of that because I didn't want you to freak out on me. All right? And he, this Lee, this kid, this junior high kid, did such a great job. His, his science teacher said, you know, you did such a fine job, I could see you becoming a neurosurgeon someday. Well, that's exactly what happened. Years later, after another successful brain surgery, uh, Dr. Buono was meeting with one of his patients whom he had performed a surgery, and the patient said, you should really thank the person that inspired you hadn't considered that, but he's like, you know, I'm going to do that. And so he did. He tracked down his former junior high teacher, and guess what? Mr. Al Sadecki is still at the Med- Memorial, Medford Memorial Middle School teaching science. Tracked him down and thanked him. And this is what the junior high teacher, Mr. Sadecki, said. I was flabbergasted. Of all the people in your entire career, you want to thank me? It was the same feeling I had when my kids were born. He writes, I I started to cry. It made me feel really important that I had that influence. He says, lately, I am almost afraid to say that I'm a teacher to some people. Not anymore, because you called me. I'm going to help as many people as I can find their passion too. See, that's what Paul is doing. He is passing on direct encouragement. He is building up the believers. He loves these people. And he's wanting them to be everything they can be in Christ. And so he is calling them out and he is pointing out, let me tell you what I see in you. Well, look at this next one. Look at verse 13. This is fascinating. Look at this. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Interesting. Rufus isn't a huge popular name, but it should be. Let me give you a little bit of a backstory on this. Okay, do you remember when Jesus, after being beaten, whipped, and then condemned to die, remember, he is carrying his cross to his own crucifixion. But he has been beat so badly that he keeps stumbling, he can't do it. And so do you remember they found just someone, pulled him out of the crowd, and they threw him into service to carry the cross of Jesus. Anybody happen to remember the guy's name? That's right, I heard it. Simon, Simon of Cyrene. Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark in Rome, and its original audience is going to start with the people in Rome, 
he writes of this event, and so he says, they kept speaking of Jesus, they kept beating his head and, with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after that, they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, and Mark writes this, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. So somewhere Simon, perhaps when he witnesses this, he believes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. It is believed that he goes back to Rome. He leads his family to Christ. We don't know what happened to Simon. We don't know what happened to Alexander. But we do know that there is a man named Rufus in verse 13. He is called a choice man in the Lord. How powerful is this? It's, it's like it is possible, and maybe when we're in heaven, we find out that Paul, who obviously knows Rufus well, it is possible that he heard about the death of Jesus from the mouth of Simon of Cyrene himself. And the one who once was the great enemy of the faith, who becomes the Apostle Paul, becomes great friends with the son of the man who carried the cross of Jesus. Is that not powerful? And notice what else. This is the only time this occurs in the New Testament, verse 13. He refers to also his mother and mine. Now, Rufus's mother wasn't Paul's biological mother. But this woman understood apostles are actual people too. I'll tell you, whether you're a missionary, you're a pastor, involved in church ministry, some people have some pretty big platforms. Do you not know they're all people? And there's always, God always raises up these people. They don't really care about your titles or your influence or anything like that. They just care about you as a person. And they invest in you and they care for you. They send you cookies that care about your kids. We've got people like that in our church. They just adopt you. And you need to know the Apostle Paul, he's a real guy. He had a lot of hurts. A lot of discouraging things in his life. He took a beating in more ways than one. But he had this woman, and he refers to her as his mother. She cares for me like a mother cares for his son. We need more people like this. And then he goes on to list more uh, people. Verses 14 and 15 are likely... Uh, the leaders in the two different churches that are meeting in Rome, and he lists them by name. Uh, I want to just kind of keep moving, though. I want you to see, after he lists all of these saints, verse 16. He says, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When the Jews, when they started coming to Christ, they carried on the practice of greeting, and they would greet one another with a kiss on the cheek or on the beard. And so in the early church, this practice was continued. And for those who are facing such ostracism, losing their families, being run out of town, being beat, when you came to church and you gathered with the saints and someone greeted you with a kiss because they were glad to see you and they loved you, that makes all the difference. Now, in our culture, if we were around kissing each other, it'd create a lot of problems, okay? So... We may not be doing the Christian kiss so much, right? But we're into holy handshakes and holy hugs, right? We, but why do we do that? We know what? There are folks in our church, this may be about all the Christian love they get each week. 
And you're probably sitting by them. They need to know that they're warmly welcome and they're, we're glad that they're here. And how are they doing? That is the church. And that's what we see here. And he says, all the churches in Christ greet you. The church universal. We're all radically different. We are slaves. We are freemen. We are wealthy. We are uneducated. Some are poor. Some have everything going. Some have great power and influence. And others of us are groveling around in the dirt. But it does not matter your background because your race, your background, that isn't important. You know what's important? Jesus is. And he unites us in him. And so that's what we find in the early church. We find this great love. And if you want to make disciples like Paul, you might want to take a few lessons on how he did it and how he loved people. So let me ask you, what words did you put down? What words did you put down that you found that described these people? I'll give you some that I found. They were Christ-centered. They were in Christ. Did you see how often that was rephrased? They were committed. They were committed to Christ, to the mission of making disciples, to each other. They were invested. They used their time, treasure, talent. They invested in the kingdom. Uh, they were sacrificial. Did you notice they were working hard? They risked their own lives. They were growing. Remember Apellus? He was approved. That means he'd been tested. He had gone through the ringer. Some of you are going through the ringer. It is tough. But you keep holding on to Jesus. You're tested. You're, you're growing. Another word I wrote down is they're content. That Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. And finally, they're unified. They're unified in love, by love, because of Christ. So let me just ask you, what are the words that describe you? If you were to write them down, what, what would describe you? What are the words that would describe our church? How are we known in this community? What are the words that you would say, Fellowship Bible Church is, and you'd put these words? I ask you this because that the words that describe you, they eventually will define you. You will be known by your way of life, your priorities, how you act, what's important to you, and what you did. And don't think lightly of any opportunity that God has given you. Take full advantage of the opportunities. You have no idea what God is going to do. You see, the legacy that you leave depends on the life that you live. Several years ago, I had the privilege of taking my family to Washington, D.C., and uh, one of the sites I really wanted to take in and I wanted my kids to see was to go to Arlington National Cemetery to see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And uh, I'd read about this, but then to see it. And so atop of the hill, they have, overlooking Washington, D.C., they have this big white sarcophagus. In March 4th, 1921, Congress approved the burial of an unidentified American soldier from World War I. And so they have it set up there, and, and it, it is powerful. We don't know who the individual was. You'll see those three others. Uh, they're these, you see the, like right there, those like white um, plaques that are in the ground, those gravestones. They represent unknown soldiers from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. No one knew who they were. No one officially grieved for them. They never received the tricolor. No relative, no wife was given that. You just don't know. And so it's called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. And the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They just always guard this tomb. In fact, it's what they do is they march 21 steps, and then they turn, they pause for 21 seconds, they turn again, 21 seconds, and then they go back. And when they do, they take their rifle, and they put it on the shoulder that separates the crowd from the grave, representing that they are, going, they are willing to fight 
And why is it 21? Why 21 second stop, 21 second steps? What, what's 21? Because a 21 gun salute is the highest honor that we can give someone in the military. And so around this tomb of the unknown soldier, continual honor, our highest honor, keeps going up to someone we simply do not know. So on that particular sarcophagus, is written these words, and maybe you can see it. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. And friends, that's what Romans 16 is. These may have been just names, but they are known but to God. They have run their race, and they are receiving continual glory because God has had their names inscripturated. And friends, you right now, you're running your race. And the life that you live, that's going to determine everything about your legacy. Because you see, the legacy that you leave depends upon the life that you live. And God is glorifying himself by working his power and glory through his people.